Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. Everybody want to do their own thing now. I mean, we need some young people. But the, the Lord of bless us and we'll be all right. You gonna look at the Spurs tonight? Who they playing? When we read Psalm 51, David repented. What? What are we doing here? Because we mess up, amen? That was a clip from the trailer of The Passing On, a documentary about an undertaker at one of the remaining black funeral homes in the United States. It was created by my guests today, Richmond filmmakers Nathan Clark and Tyler Trumbo. They'll talk about how they found the embalmer, shooting in Texas over three years, and the challenges of being Caucasian and covering a black subject. Sifter Review of the Week Uncoupled, a new series on Netflix. This show will inevitably be named The Gay Sex in the City, primarily because that show's creator, Darren Starr, did this one. Neil Patrick Harris plays a 40-something who's dumped by his boyfriend of 17 years. That leaves him to deal with the pain of the breakup as well as the challenges of being newly single. Parallels to Sex in the City include many scenes that showcase New York City landmarks, his hanging out and getting advice from his besties, often over brunch, the supporting characters who have their own interesting stories, and plenty of sex. Harris brings his full comic charm and dramatic abilities to the lead. The enjoyable supporting class includes Tisha Campbell as his sassy business partner, Brooks S. Mancus as his artistic friend, and Marsha Gay Harden as the rich client. It takes until episode three or four before things get truly funny, but then it improves with each installation. There are also a few moments of drama just to season things. I'm not sure how this will relate to those outside the gay community, but I found the characters and the situations lots of cosmopolitan fun. I gave it four and a half out of five stars. So Nathan and Clark, I just have to tell you, this is interesting that relates to your documentary. When I was in college, I took an aptitude test. The two things that told me I should be was a musician and an undertaker. That's amazing. That like, is incredible. How did they figure that out from my aptitude? But anyway, that's a perfect segue into The Passing On, which is your documentary about... Um, well, why don't you tell us what the documentary is about? The Passing On is a story about a man at the end of his career, James Bryant, and that vocation is as an undertaker, specifically an embalmer. And as he sort of nears the end of his career, I think he has this desire to sort of pass along what is important to him to a younger generation. Surprise guest drop in. Hello. James. James. <laughs> That's too funny. Footnote. James Bryant Sr. is the embalmer who's featured in their documentary. So, James, welcome to Sifter. What do you have to say to these two guys after all this time? Well, I just want to tell them again, thank you for the documentary. It was so wonderful. I got so many letters from people across the nation. Wow. And they were saying how they enjoyed it because it was on PBS. And it went nationwide. And that was something I never would have even dreamed of. So what did you think when they first contacted you and said, hey, we want to do a documentary about you? What was your response to these two crazy white boys from Virginia want to do a documentary on you? Well, the first thing I wanted to know was how they found me. Okay, well, they found me from the Texas Monthly Magazine. 
they've had uh, printed a story about my life as an embalmer. And from there, we just took off with it. So what was the thing that most was most interesting or most impressive about working with them? I had a chance to exhibit some of my teaching skills. Right. And uh, I think that was very impressive because you have students from various backgrounds. And Clarence had his own background. Anna Marie had hers. And uh, it was very interesting how they responded to the teaching on camera. So, Tyler, Nathan, you got any questions for James? James, what was one of the funniest parts of working with Nate? One of the funniest parts of working with Nate, man, it was so many. But I think really it was trying to convince him that this documentary was worth it. You know, I think at first he was kind of like, well, maybe and maybe not. But I think he was convinced that this was going to be a good documentary. He wasn't certain. Well, we were going at first. And then once he got into it, it was on. That happens a lot with documentaries. You kind of have an idea, but then it tells its own story once you start unfolding it. Exactly, exactly. Any final words of uh, wisdom to these two guys before we let you go and get on with talking about you behind your back? (laughs) Well, Nate's a good boss. He really is. He loves to eat. And we always had barbecue. We always went in and had something, but... uh, I enjoyed them both. It was just great. It was just great all the way around. It is a fascinating documentary, and it was wonderful to get to know you through that. And by the way, to you two guys, to let you know, turns out that James and I found out we actually were born a month apart. Wow. That's right. Yep, yep. Because we were talking about, I was saying, hey, I'm 72, and I'm retired, and he's still slugging away. And I said, come on. I'll be 73 on October the 9th. And you're not retired yet? No, sir. Every time I talk to James, it goes back and forth. I'll have a conversation with James. I'm ready to retire. And then two or three months later, I'll have another conversation. I'm not retired. But she asked me to stay. She said, you have been the face of this funeral home for so long. I'm going to let you go to all your appointments. I'm going to let you work part-time. And I'm going to let you keep your salary. But James, you know, she asked you to stay. But you know that you were more than willing to say, okay. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> there yes, you I go. Was. The truth comes out. Especially when she told me I could keep my pay. I was mm-hmm. saying, that's real good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There you go. Well, tell everybody we say howdy. I sure will. And they've been very good to me. And you guys have, too. I can't thank you enough for what you did for me. There you go, James. Thank you so much. Appreciate you dropping in today. Okay, and you guys take care. Take it easy. Okay, bye-bye. See you, James. Yeah, talk soon. So let's back up a little bit and talk about you guys, Tyler Trumbo and Nathan Clark. Y'all started a company called Fourth Line Films. What was the story with that, and what does that title mean? What is the fourth line? I don't even know what the third line is. (laughs) My family's all Canadian, and I grew up loving hockey. When hockey happens, there's four offensive lines that sort of switch on. And like your really talented guys are on your first two lines, your defensive guys are on your third line. And then there's these guys that play on the fourth line, the guys that maybe they don't have all the talent in the world, but they will do whatever it takes to win. So that means scoring a good goal, getting into a fight, whatever it's going to take, standing up for their, their teammates. And so I always like that image of the fourth line, that kind of idea, especially because I think that's what a lot of documentary work is. It's sort of rolling up your sleeves. It may not be the most amazing looking thing when you're sort of capturing at the moment, 
but you got to do whatever it sort of takes to kind of capture the story. By the way, I do have to thank you guys for RVA Documentary, the group that you founded, and Sasha Waters Fire mentioned it when in her interview. Of course, I went because I was starting my documentary, or I was in the middle of my documentary on Dirt Woman, and actually at one of your meetings, I met my first opportunity, which was to get it shown in Charlottesville. So I have to thank you guys for that before we go any further. Amazing. What were the breakdown of duties? I believe from the credits, Nathan, you're considered the director. Tyler, you considered the editor on this, or did it overlap some too? The editing overlapped some. Like just the natural process that we would do was extremely collaborative on that front, kind of figuring out what the story was. And that was very much both of us kind of batting things back and forth. When it really came down to like the ins and outs, the day-to-day work of making this film, I really think that it was a collaborative experience between three people and then a couple other really important sort of secondary people. I would have been more than happy to have said (laughs) just a film by Tyler, Nate, Lana, with help from Tim, John, and Johnny, right? Right. But film festivals don't really have a way of like, but that's the reality is like, that's how we made the film. Now- Now, who is Lana? Lana is the producer. She's down okay. in um, Durham. Okay. And she was the one that sort of first pushed us to sort of say, you know, the, the story here is not just about death. It's about the role of the funeral home in the African-American community. And that sort of opened up a new world to it. I know a statistic you posted early in the documentary was that there were 3,000 Black-owned funeral homes in the United States. Now it's down to 1,200. What got you inspired originally? Where did you find that information and what made you said, okay, we want to do something on a funeral home of all things? Not exactly the brightest topic in the world. (laughs) Well, we were making a a documentary, like a survey documentary called We All Die. Another happy title. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the idea was that we would just have like interviews with experts intercut with like practitioners. And through that process, Tyler discovered James. We were already down in that area in San Antonio with other work. And very quickly, what I discovered was this headline that he had been deemed the National Embalmer of the Year, which at first I had no idea what that meant. My head went to like best in show, where you present <laughs> your best work. Right, right. Um, but it's, it's much more of a, like a lifetime achievement recognition. Right. And so we went down there. He was our very first profile that we were going to do. And what we witnessed between him, between Clarence, and at that time between Anna Marie, the other intern, was just really captivating dynamic. Well, I just want to make sure I understand. So you started this other documentary, We All Die, and then that pivoted into this. That one, you didn't finish that one as a separate piece. This one became that one. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Just want to yeah. make sure. The title is The Passing On. That has a double entendre, maybe even a triple entendre. You want to explain how y'all came up with that title? It was an evolution, right? That it was a name that we got to about half, would you say halfway or more than halfway through? More than halfway. We did the funeral home in part because we just didn't want to be like super like punny with it. Although we kind of ended up with a little bit of a punny yeah, name. Yeah, there's a little pun in there. It's not as bad as so long, folks. Or Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? I think the problem with the funeral home Well, one, it was not a story about the funeral home. This is a story about the relationship between James and Clarence. And I liked the idea of adding like the definitive article in front of it, the passing on, that it just sort of made it feel like that it was documenting a moment and an occasion, like a very specific thing that was happening between two men. 
So how long did this take? I mean, y'all had to go down there more than once. And I, did you sometimes just have to kind of sit and wait until a funeral was showing up or a, a body came in? Or did you did they let you know stuff was happening? Or how did that whole process work? And how long did it take you? And so we went down and we visited with him initially. And then probably like, what, two weeks later, two, three weeks later, we were filming. And it, to make a long story short, there was about six months where we were down there about four to five days a month. And then for the next six months, we would be like getting very specific things like the funeral of Eddie. The editing took about three years and we uh, premiered in, in 2020 at the New Orleans Film Festival. Great, great. Years ago, I did a job for the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board and we shot in the state morgue because we wanted to actually have some dead bodies with toe tags and the whole thing to say, kids, you drink and drive. Here's where you're going to end up. What was it like for y'all working in an embalming room with dead bodies all around? Was that kind of weird at the beginning and you got used to it or? No, you did not get used to it. There is something in the Richmond airport. They use the same cleaner that they used at the funeral home. And it has this like fruity cherry smell. Oh, wow. And I was in the airport last night. Somebody had just cleaned up something. And it was like my brain just went immediately back there. I think the first thing I would say about being back there is it did feel like a sacred space. We always wanted to be attentive to that. But then at the same time, people were doing jobs, right? In the midst of doing jobs, there would be a discussion about what you were going to do for lunch. Sure. And I think that's what's one of the things that's so interesting about those spaces, the ability of these men and women to sort of navigate that and to read a moment. There was obviously like a shock value at first, just because it was something that I had never really seen all that much other than for like a relative's funeral. As time went on, too, it was one that was just became the environment that the story was in. And of course, to preserve that sacredness to some extent, obviously, you never see the, the actual people who are being embalmed. You never see the bodies and the faces. Occasionally, you see an arm or something, but you never actually see them, which obviously is appropriate. So what kind of budget and crew did y'all? Did y'all just have all this money yourself? Did you get a grant or uh, somebody rich that we don't know about? Tyler mentioned that we were doing work in, in San Antonio. So that kind of helped pay for a lot of the travel expenses and sort of being down there. This is the kind of project that I think like Tyler and I believe in and that we want to see more of in the world, but also understand that these kind of projects are pretty difficult to fund. And so a lot of what it meant is sort of leveraging some of the corporate work that we were doing. In addition to that, there was sort of like a friends and family raise as well, which raised probably like a quarter of it. So that took a lot of the edge off of, you know, booking hotel rooms and buying hard drives and right, stuff right. like that. And that was pretty much the two of y'all either shooting and or doing audio. Did you take another person along or was it pretty much just the two of you most of the time? Actually, it was rarely the two of us. Yeah, Tyler can pull off shooting in that sort of observational environment. There's just something that's unique in observational documentary filmmaking about the cinematographer, their ability to sort of disappear, like people forget that they're there. Right. We have two friends, uh, a guy named Tim Grant and John Harrison, who are both just incredible about that. They just sort of disappear right. and like 12 hours later, they're still filming. Wow. Right. They're just remarkable. Yeah, they're both guys. kind of like Energizer bunnies. Yeah. So you let them do some of the shooting too, some of the, when you had to be they there did for the hours. majority of it. Oh, did they? Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So John did like the majority of like establishing the aesthetic of the film. And then Tim did the majority of the hours and hours of filming something to sort of wait for that moment of magic. Takes patience. That's the big word yeah. there. And lots of hard drives. Yes. 
It's kind of an interesting situation because you're obviously chronicling the story of a black funeral home. And here are two white guys coming down here to do this. How was that? Was there ever any kind of, did y'all have to get over any uncomfortableness with them or vice versa? And also, you know, shooting in the, in the churches, when you're shooting in a funeral itself, when that's an all black service. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's complicated. And it's complicated because a lot of times things are assumed and unsaid. I think that when we bring a camera into an environment as, in my case, a 47-year-old white man, all of those pieces carry some degree of authority. And some of that authority gives you access. And some of that authority is problematic. And you need to learn how to sort of check it. It's not just as simple as asking for permission. We may have sort of sort of thought that in the beginning, and we learned from that, right? It's not just enough to sort of say, hey, James, can we do this? Right. Because that power dynamic is at play, right? And it's hard to sort of talk about that in a meaningful way. The word that I would come back to a lot would be accountability, that we had to create systems of accountability, particularly in the editing, but then also in how we were treating the filming where we were placing ourselves under the authority and the power of other people, if they said, you can't do that, that we would listen. Us saying we wanted to do this was not enough. Somebody may say, go ahead and do that, but that doesn't mean that it's right. And very much like this whole thing, it was so much a process of learning and getting to this point. You know, so like a, a tangible example, as we got about halfway through the edit, It was really important for us to have the film seen by friends uh, or family or people that we knew or people that were sort of in various different groups of people that were represented in the film. All three, Lana, Tyler, and I are all straight. And so it was important when we had an early cut of the film for us to show that to some of our gay friends and say, what do you think? You didn't call me. (laughs) next time but it was really interesting you know one this is a tangible thing we changed in the film and i know you're asking about race here but that edit that we had there actually didn't have all the material and i'm going to give the spoiler here but it's in the trailer so or at least in the description of the film but it didn't have the material in it where james responds to clarence's sexuality and basically says you know it's the same as my sin right And that wasn't in that cut. And the piece of feedback we got was like, we know that James thinks this. Why not say it? Be honest about it. People are complex and difficult people. And and so let's be straight. Let's be honest about it. Straight. Yeah, might not be the right word. Yeah, yeah, I realize that. (laughs) Straightforward is what I meant to say. Right, right, right. So that's just sort of one example, and that's just in the editing, that where it's really important for us to have that accountability. And I think that that experience has really fundamentally changed how I think about this process. And I think that before I started this film, I might have said something along the line of any filmmaker can make whatever story they want as long as they have access to it. And I would probably have a much more nuanced picture of that at this point. Tyler, how about you? I think both of us by nature 
don't have a specific agenda when we go in, like our stories are character driven. And so part of that is understanding how do you have this balance between the story that you see and that you want to try to tell versus the holding respect for the people that you're working with. And that transcends race. That would be in, in a case with any story that you're shooting like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like when you talk to you about funerals, like part of it too is just a sense of trust and respect. And the, the funerals that are there were always, it was through James and it was in, in building a trust through the community through him. And it was one that we never stepped into a space where people, one, didn't know, like people knew we were there and they invited us in. And that was always important. So what was the trajectory of the release of the documentary after you finished it? Where did it go before it got to PBS? There's a whole, there's a whole nother podcast that could be made about just releasing a film in the time of COVID. Oh, that's right. You know, it's interesting because I've done podcasts with a number of people who have shown films at film festivals. And I say I was so lucky that mine was in 2018 when I got to show it live. And I've had other people talk about, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, the guys who did CryptoZoo, they had theirs at a drive-in screening in Atlanta because they couldn't actually have an audience. So you were you got to experience the crappy side of being at film festivals during COVID, right? Or not being at them, but entering film festivals. Yeah. And I think it was difficult because the virtual was not a replacement. It's not the same thing ever. But here's something crazy. I have not watched the entire film with a live audience. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I have either. Well, if you were showing it, yeah. How many festivals did you actually screen it at? It was like 15. Wow. 15 to 20, something along those lines. And like some really great festivals that we were excited about. But then, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder in the back of my mind, like, should we have waited? But then I'm like, I talk to some people every once in a while. And it was clear that like when things were opening up, there was just this glut of films that were waiting that chose to wait. And so it was like, right. your competition would have been so much higher. What would you say was the biggest challenge in this whole process? Oh, that's a good question. You had lots of them with COVID and all those years and the money and everything. So on the filmmaking side, I think that once we made the decision that this was going to be a story that sort of focused on James passing this on to sort of Clarence or passing it on to students. Things kind of came together on a production level for that. I mean, there were some things that we wished that we had. There were some times where we wished that we were there longer. There were some remarkable scenes that we all, I mean, one of the best scenes that I've ever been part of filming in my life. And we just sort of felt like it just wasn't reading properly. It just sort of raised more questions. And oh, yeah, you have to kill your children. That's the. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, but yep. I, without a doubt, I got to say that the hardest thing was the release of it. When I think about the thing that has just like had a sense of heaviness and a weight to it, it's that we couldn't sort of celebrate the film with one another and celebrate it with James and with Clarence and with Lewis Funeral Home. And we still are, we'll hopefully do a screening in San Antonio at some point. And there was no roadmap for that. It wasn't like we knew what to do and we just failed at it. We just sort of tried the best that we could. And um, I'm deeply, deeply proud of what we created. And I'm very, very proud of how we created it. But the release of it was just a slog. Tyler, what about you? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, at first I was going to say just the, it was always difficult to continually navigate the story for three years, but that was always fun. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. But the, I think the release too was the most difficult because it's not the, it's not the thing we expected. 
it was pretty transformative for us as filmmakers working together, especially the second half of the process with Nate and Lana to not have this victory lap isn't the right word, I don't think, but something of like a celebration of this is what we all have been able to accomplish together. Conclusion, yeah. To not have that kind of in-person opportunity. And especially too with James. I knew James was, was so excited. And I know that he would have loved to have traveled all over for this film. And oh, yeah. I would have loved to have been there. And, and some of the discussion, there was a lot of, there was a couple, like a handful of discussions that made us, made me more proud of the film too. Just a couple Q and A discussions that some of the things that were being explored were just like, wow, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, what this film is able to kind of discussions it can spark. But again, it was like a handful of people who attended that virtual yeah, Zoom yeah. Q and A. And so it's just kind of bittersweet. I'll tell you, it can also be very disappointing when you show up to show your movie in a theater and there's eight people sitting in the theater. So oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes that small true. Q&A on the Zoom is better. That's true. <laughs> so speaking of watching stuff, the last question is always, what are y'all watching? Well, I just, I did, I was one of the many that probably devoured Stranger Things season four. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> yeah, especially episode four. Was that in Russia? Was that the Russians when the, the monsters went crazy? Because that was my favorite. No. No, this was this was the one that has brought about the resurgence of Kate Bush. Oh, okay. Like how they built towards this moment where she was able to escape his clutches was just, I don't know how to describe it in a way that doesn't sound cliche, but it's one of the best episodes of television that, uh -huh. that hit me in a way in a long time. Nathan, how about you? So do you want, uh, or I'll give you the answer I'm supposed to give, and then I'll give you the honest answer. Great. I, I tend to like sort of two types of series that are exemplified by a couple things, like Peacemaker and The Boys, things that sort of through satire and through comedy sort of poke holes at some of our obsessions. And of course, superheroes in that case, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've watched the intro to Peacemaker <laughs> more times the big then, um, for those who haven't watched it that's a big dance number that's pretty wacky john cena and everybody else just making fools out of themselves it's yes, fun and they <laughs> love it they, yeah. keeping it up i really like severance and i've really liked barry because they feel so unique and singular and not derivative in any right. kind of way right. uh barry too i mean the season three of barry was just a gut punch of remarkable and and that last scene how about that? Yeah. Nobody saw that yes. coming. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, Tyler hasn't seen it because he's sitting quietly. I've tried to convince Tyler so many times. I'm like, I know, I need this. to. <laughs> and then the honest thing that I spend the most time watching, my ADHD brain, about every year, I get obsessed with something. In the height of COVID, I got really obsessed with woodworking. And over the last, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing, over the last six months, I've gotten super obsessed with roller coasters. And I watch a ton of videos on YouTube about roller coasters. <laughs> and part of it is, is like, it's all about like organizing information in my brain and then going out and having experiences and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's, I watch way too much YouTube. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to have a chance to catch up with y'all because it's been a couple of years as we've even seen each other. But thank you so much for joining us and good luck on your next projects. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Jerry. That was RVA filmmakers Tyler Trumbo and Nathan Clark, who created The Passing On, a documentary about an undertaker at one of the remaining black funeral homes in the United States. Links to the movie and more are on the webpage at tvjerry.com. Coming soon. In theaters. Bullet Train, 
Brad Pitt stars in this action thriller that takes place on the world's fastest train. Easter Sunday. Stand-up comic Joe Coy stars as a man who comes home to celebrate Easter in his Filipino-American community. Fire of Love, a documentary about two scientists who are also lovers and their intense study of volcanoes. Bodies, 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 a party game during a hurricane turns deadly with Amanda Stenberg and Pete Davidson. TV and streaming. On the 5th, The Sandman on Netflix. From the comic book series, Morpheus, the King of Dreams, embarks on a journey to restore his power. Prey on Hulu. The notorious predator monsters appear on Earth for the first time 300 years ago in the Comanche Nation. They, Them on Peacock. It's the latest slasher film, and the twist is that it takes place at a queer conversion camp and stars Kevin Bacon. Luck. On Apple, this animated film about a young woman who discovers a lucky penny and then loses it. This is the first film helmed by John Lasseter since leaving Pixar. Secret Headquarters on Paramount Plus. Walter Scoble, last seen playing Ryan Reynolds' younger self in The Atom Project, stars as a tween who discovers the secret superhero lair of his father, Owen Wilson. Next week, we'll have an extended production vocabulary lesson with some great anecdotes. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more Sister, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.